Hey, good morning. How's everybody doing? Are we good? Man, that was, wasn't that an awesome worship service? Man, I was doing fine until, I was good until Jesus paid it all. Then I don't know if it's the fact that it's a hymn or the words or what, but dang, that one got me. Thank you. That was an awesome job. Um, okay, so I'm trying to see who's here because I figure we're like all in the same club this weekend. It's like Labor Day. Certain people are like, cool, they have places to go. I've never been one of those people, so I'm trying to figure out who else is in the club of, we don't really have cool places to go on places like Labor Day weekend, yeah. So you know what? We're in the coolest place of all. That's the club we're in. Yeah, well, I've renamed the club. We're the cool kids. Yeah. Um, well, good. Well, I hope you guys have had a good weekend. Oh, no. Did I get the stand that does the... Maybe that's going to be my signature. The girl who preaches in her stand keeps shrinking. That happened last time. Um, anyway, yes, uh, Laura mentioned last week. I don't know about you guys. I thought last week was just awesome. Just having all the kids here and just see. And I wasn't, I had never been a part of that kind of service before. In fact, my first Sunday here at the Edge was like, I think um, next Sunday it'll be a year ago. And so um, I hadn't seen it before, but boy, I was touched and encouraged beyond words. But I have to admit, I feel like last week was like a year ago. Anyone else? I just feel like I've lived about a year's worth of life since, since last week. And um, I tell you, one of the first things that I particularly just fell in love with about the Edge Church family, and I'm sure if you've been around for any length of time, you'd say the same thing, is I love the authenticity of this place. Um, I was blown away uh, in small groups that I was in. I was blown away at Dwell. I've been blown away from people on the stage just at the consistency of being able to be authentic, seeking uh, to strengthen our faith, but in a very authentic and real way. And so in order to keep that authenticity, I feel like I just need to start off by letting you know that I feel a little bit off kilter today um, because one week ago, Oh, shoot. Already. My grandpa passed away. <sighs> anyway, so I just got back last night from, um, from a town near Kentucky and was with my whole family. And, and if you've kind of gathered with your extended family before over um, the loss of someone that you all love so much, you know that kind of weird dichotomy of, of like, man, this is awesome. I'm around all of my family, um, and then also, this is horrible. You know, it's like, it's like all of that, all at the same time. And, um, and actually, that's, that's um, not terribly different from just real life, is it? Because, I mean, if, I, I'm sure you could agree. If I could just stand here right now and name five really awesome things that are going on, I could do it. Because there are, there's some wonderful things going on in our life. Some wonderful things to celebrate and be thankful for. And, and I could also very quickly spout off five things that, if I thought about it too long, I'd probably have an anxiety attack. Earring? Aw. They're really, I bought them for this day. <laughs> that just feels unfair. If you're a girl, you know what I'm going to do? I tell you what. No, that doesn't work. Okay, whatever. They're cute. Take a look at them. We'll be done. I knew he wanted to tell me something. It's not like RVK just sits up there all the time. So, I... so anyway, um, but I do feel that I need to tell you that because 
I tried really hard up until pretty much I got here to just be like, Lord, can you just please subside the pain that I feel inside? Could you um, help me put it aside for just this, this chunk? Because this might sound strange to you, but I still believe that I was supposed to give this message. Because the thing is, I had already been slated to do it, and I'd already started reading the passage. And if you have kind of a teacher's heart, you know that once you start locking into a passage, it's like, no, no, I got to do this. And so, um, so I, I, I'm still excited to give this word. I still feel like it's a word for us. It's a word for us today, and I am excited to give it. And at the same time, there's this tension of, um, and I kind of want to lay down in a ball and cry. Can, can we just say that sometimes that is life? And the longer I live, the more I'm like definitely noticing that that is life. And so um, I tried really hard this morning just to be like, God, could you just please like just set that aside for me? Could you please like not let me think about him at least while I'm at church? And um, he didn't grant me that pleasure. But what I've realized is through a couple of intercessor prayers that actually we're not supposed to be compartmentalizing our faith. Actually, he wants us to bring it all. And so I believe that this word is true, and I'm coming today because I desperately need the arms of my Heavenly Father around me, and I bet you you do too. And so I'm not going to stand up here and pretend like I'm not hurting, and I tell you what, if you're hurting today, you don't have to pretend that you're not either. In fact, if you're doubting today, in fact, if you're struggling with depression, anxiety, fear, or if you have lots of things you're very excited about, you can feel those things too because all of those things don't belong anywhere more than they belong right here in the intimate relationship with your Father. And so today, I just want to pray for us before we even open the Scripture um, that we can take all of what's going on with us, all of it. And just enter this sacred space. In an hour, we're going to be done. And we're going to go on with our routine. But in this space, your heavenly father has something to say. And we're going to seek it together. So let's go ahead and, and pray together, if you would. Um, father, I thank you for this message. I thank you in advance for the way that you're going to split it up a hundred different ways. And somehow take a general message that is true for us because we are your children. But you're also going to speak something very, very unique to each one of your children that you created uniquely. And you know the unique path we're walking on. You are with the people in this room who are grieving. You are with the people in this room who are scared. You are with the people in this room who have no hope or think they have no hope. You are with the person that feels alone. And you are with the person that is celebrating victories. And you are their biggest champion and you are our advocate, Lord. And today I pray that this message would fall on everybody in its unique way. And I know that that's your will, so I pray it in faith. And we thank you in advance. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you've been around here for a while, you know that we have been, um, for a little bit of time now, we have been reading Hebrews. Which, of course, is, is that book that kind of um, ties the Old Testament and the New Testament together. And the funny thing is, when I asked to, um, to be on the, the schedule for September 2nd, it wasn't because I looked at the passage and said, that's the passage I want. It's because I went through like most busy people and said, well, September 9th, I'm in quest. The next week I'm gone. The next week, well, okay, I'll do September 2nd. And so 
Interestingly enough, um, if any of you were here the last time I got to preach, which was a long time ago, many chapters ago, it's interesting because this passage is basically a repeat of that exact same thing. So I'm like, do I just preach the same thing twice? I don't know. Um, but it's cool because we're going to take a different slant. But it is really interesting to me. So I'm going to skip over some um, details. If you don't know a lot about Jesus being the high priest and that kind of stuff is going to be thrown in here. If that's unfamiliar to you as it was to me before I preached on it, you can go back and listen to that sermon online and it's literally called Jesus the High Priest and it'll explain some of this tabernacle temple stuff a little bit more in detail than where we're going today. Today, we're gonna take a little bit of a different angle. So if you have your Bibles, I still like to have an actual Bible. I don't know about you. I like marking it up and everything. You can turn to it, but if not, no worries. It'll be right up here. We're just gonna get to reading together. And this chunk of scripture is uh, the whole part of it it is Hebrews 9, 1 through 14. It is a long chunk, so we're just going to splice it up and then talk about each one. And we're going to start off with the very first chunk, 9, 1 through 5, and it is titled, Worship in the Earthly Tabernacle. Okay? And it says this, Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up, and in its first room were the lampstand, the table, the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold ark covered the uh, covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail. Does anyone else think that's super funny? I'm like reading about like every little piece of furniture and then it's like, but we can't discuss this in detail. I'm just curious, what would detail look like? I don't know. Um, I actually think it gives us a window into just like what type of guy this was because if you flip back just for fun to the very end of the book, now we know how long we've been studying this, this book because it's a very, very long book. I love that he says at the end, Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have only written a short letter. <laughs> you guys, these are real people. And I just feel like this is the guy that if he says, hey, do you have a second? You might want to be like, I, gee, look at the time, you know. Um, and like those kind of people, he gets a little repetitive. And so we find ourselves um, in, a, in a passage where he's going to repeat himself from the last time I talked a little bit. But the cool things that I uncovered are so awesome, and I think you're going to find that too, because even though he describes these like furnishings in this earthly tabernacle, remember the tabernacle was the place where God's spirit actually dwelled inside that place. And actually, the first mention of the tabernacle ever was way back in Exodus 25, and it was when Moses was leading the Israelites out of Egypt, out of captivity. Now they're in the wilderness, and even though they're in the wilderness, they were freed from captivity to be with God. See, his purpose of the tabernacle is the same as it is when he very first created man to dwell with them. And then he created the tabernacle to dwell with them. And then the better covenant came along, which we'll talk about. And that was so that he could forever dwell with us. His purpose has never changed. And so when we talk about the furnishings, it seems like, well, what's the big deal 
about like the furnishings. Like, why do you need to tell us what color the couch was, you know? Actually, if you want to do a study on it, that is a very fascinating study because every little piece of furniture has such significance. Every single detail of it has significance. But what I think is really important for us to get today is this little part here, Exodus 25.2. Because Exodus 25.2 is when God is giving Moses um, the instructions for building the tabernacle, and he's giving him the instructions. You know, you tell the Israelites they can bring this kind of lampstand and this kind of wood for the ark, and this, and it was very, very specific. I mean, you can read chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter about the very specific design of the tabernacle. But then it ends with this. And I think this is so cool. God says to Moses, tell them the furnishings are to be a free will offering from anyone whose heart prompts them. And then I'll make it my dwelling place. So you see, do you see the parallel? Because the thing is, God's design is very specific, perfect, in fact. And it's not like you can just choose what to bring. It's not like, oh, I've got this, you know, cute little sofa that I'm going to bring into the tabernacle. You don't get to do that. It has to be exactly what he said. But he won't force you to bring it. He doesn't even want to force you to bring it. It's a free will offering. So these furnishings are specific. It's not your way. (laughs) It's definitely not your way. It's his way. But only for those who want to bring it. He's always been interested in the heart. I remember um, I've got my little sister on my mind because I've been around her a lot in the last couple weeks. That's the dichotomy of the funeral. It's like a bonus to get to be around her, uh, but sad too. But one of the things we were talking about is she used to be obsessed with the movie Beauty and the Beast. When she was little and I was 16 and I always had to babysit my 8-year-old sister, she'd want to watch Beauty and the Beast. And we'd watch it all the time. And so then when Beauty and the Beast came out like a year or two ago, I can't just fairly recently with like real characters, I couldn't wait to take my daughters because they're really into music and theater and my little sister loved that movie. And so anyway, so we went and they loved it. And this one scene just totally captured me. It was one of those really neat moments, out-of-the-box moments where I felt like God just, just ministered to me through this. But there was that one scene, if you know Beauty and the Beast, she's being held captive by this beast because he's under a spell and he has to make her fall in love with him in order to free her own dad. And So anyway, so she's, but throughout the time that she's being held captive, I don't know if it's like, what is it, Stockholm Syndrome or something, where they like fall in love with their, okay, did I say it right? I don't know. Okay, so I don't know if it was like that or what, but they began to develop a relationship. And there were moments where she even kind of forgot she was being held captive and and began to fall in love with him. And there's this scene where they're out on the balcony. It's a very pivotal scene toward the end of the movie. And, And he looked at her and he said, he could tell that she was falling in love with him, And he looked at her and he said, are you happy here? And she looked at him and said, can anyone be happy if they're not free? She chose to love him in the end, but it was once he gave her the freedom to choose if she wanted to be there or not. And I thought, man, isn't that kind of a cool picture? of why God would give us this free will. He's after our hearts. And even way back in the tabernacle, those furnishings, every piece of furniture in there was given by someone whose heart prompted him, who wanted to be a part 
of this dwelling place. I don't know about you. I think that's really cool. And we have to remember that, that back then, the temple where God's Spirit dwelled, but in the New Testament, once Jesus became that high priest. See, the thing is, just to refresh your memory, we had that, that entry place where there was an altar. Oh, come to the altar. There was an altar where the sacrifices were made by the priest. And then once those sacrifices were made, there were the ashes, and then they'd take those coals, and then they would burn incense, and that represented the prayers. And the prayers came right inside the temple entrance. But then there was a veil. Some of you know about that veil, the curtain. And on the other side of that curtain, that was called the most holy place because that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's Spirit was. And so only the, whole, the, only the high priest could go behind that curtain, even then only once a year. And so then Jesus comes along. He became the high priest he made the sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. And even his death on the cross, that curtain literally tore to represent the fact that his spirit was no longer in that physical earthly temple. We now, uh, 1 Corinthians 3.17, for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. And Ephesians 2.22, in him, in Christ, you too are being built together to become a dwelling where God's Spirit lives. And so, and so, because I have accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I have accepted his sacrifice on behalf of my sin, I am that temple. He lives in me, and he lives in you too. And for all of us that are in him, it says that we're actually being built together, not separately. Together, we are being built as a place where his spirit will dwell and manifest to an even further degree. Honestly, we should experience more manifestation of God's presence when we're together, really, than when we're apart. And so people who, um, side note, but people who say that, you know, I'm living my Christian life. I go to church in my fishing boat. Uh, I might have family members like that, you know. I, that's where I go to church. Well, I get it. Sure, I'd rather go take a walk in nature and listen to worship music and call it a day. That's my jam too. But really, we should be experiencing God's uh, manifest spirit to a whole new degree when we're together. And, and that is going to be a, a light that reaches much further and much brighter for the lost world that we claim to be after as well. So it's a beautiful picture. But now we're going to read on because now he's discussed all these furnishings. And keep in mind, the furnishings are specific. They're his design, not ours. We don't get to choose the way into God's presence. The way has been specified, and the way is his son. Okay, we don't get to come to him through our good works. We don't get to come to him um, any other way through church attendance or service or anything else. We only get to come to him the way that he specifies. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And so we don't get to choose the way, but we do get to choose if we want it. He's not going to come in here and live if you don't want him to. And so I just think that's a beautiful picture. But now that we've, we're imagining the furnishings in this earthly temple, now we go on and it says, now that we didn't discuss it in detail, <laughs> it goes on to verse 6 and says, When everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, 
and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people uh, had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the holy place had not yet been disclosed, the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was standing. This little piece, verse 6 through 8, I'm telling you, I read it over and over and over again. I knew I was finding myself in it somehow, but it took me a while to figure it out. And I realized what it was that was really getting to me. It was this part right here. When everything had been arranged just so perfectly, the priest, you have to understand, when you read about the priest in the Old Testament, you need to know that that's a picture of New Testament believers. It's actually a picture of us. When you read the rights and the responsibilities of priest, that's us. Scripture says we are the royal priesthood, a chosen people, right? And so when you read about priest, that's actually a picture of us. Insert yourself in it. When you read about high priest, of course, that's Jesus. So I want you to picture yourself in this. When everything had been arranged just so, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry out their ministries. Other versions say to carry out their tasks. And I was thinking about this because you got to understand the purpose of Hebrews, the purpose of this book, it was a sermon given to a bunch of believers who were enduring persecution after having accepted Jesus. And because they were enduring such persecution, they were really tempted to go back to their old way. So I want you to really think about what this is saying. The old way kept the priests in the outer room. So they think about this. They were near spiritual things. They were actually even very, very close to God's presence. They were probably friends with the high priest. They were friends with people that were in God's presence, you know. But they carried out their tasks just outside of his presence. And I inserted myself in that, and I thought, okay, he's trying to convince these people not to go back to the old way. Why on earth would these people want to go back to the old way? I mean, I get it. They were being persecuted, so I understand. I'm a total path of least resistance type, for sure. I get that. But honestly, they now had total access to God's spirit. Unhinged. They could just be in the intimate space with God, and they didn't need a go-between anymore. They didn't need to do all these rituals and sacrifice. And they're considering going back to ministry in the outer room. Why would they do that? Why would they ever want outer room tasks as opposed to the inner room that they could now freely access? And I thought about times and seasons in my own life that I've kind of chosen to do ministry even. Near the presence of God, amongst godly people, doing a lot of churchy things, not really in the inner room. Am I making sense to anybody else? Does this jive with anyone? Because you know the difference, don't you? You know when you're you know, serving in quest or you're up here doing worship or you're, or you're out there door greeting and you know when you're just, you know, you're just putting your time in, you're just being a good Christian, you're just, you're just, you're just doing your ministry. You're just doing your task in the outer room. And, and sometimes you can even feel like that, like, 
man, I'm looking around at other people, and they just seem like they're just more into this, maybe. Maybe you've even had that secret feeling like, man, that person just seems closer to God than I feel. And it's not fun, but, but yet these people were wanting to go back to it, and I thought, you know what, I could blame them all day for it. I do the same thing. Because, you know, intimacy, while there's lots of rewards relationally to intimacy, we would all agree with that, wouldn't we? Would you also agree that it takes some work and some intentionality? Think about it. You've got to be vulnerable. You cannot have intimacy without vulnerability, can you? No. And it takes intentionality. Think about it. You know the difference between, it's easier, okay? Like, I love my kids, but it, sometimes it's just easier to clean up after them. Sometimes it's easier to just put the food on the table rather than have the conversation. All right, I did that much, okay? I did the task. I got your food ready. Now I'm tired. I just want to go zone out. You eat. I'm going over here. The conversation, the listening to them, the learning what's going on with them, the growing as a mom with daughters, that takes some kind of work. Now the reward is exponential, but I'm constantly fighting for that intimacy. It's the same with marriage. Name me one marriage that started off just wanting to be partners in a house. I Nobody stands there on that wedding day and is like, I hope one day we can just hit or miss, you know, in the house. I hope one day I can just constantly be irritated that I'm the only one that takes the trash out. That's never happened in our house, I'm sure of it. But suppose I did have a husband who rarely takes the trash out. No, I'm totally kidding. Unfounded. I don't even know where my mind is right now. It's on someone else's husband. That's right. Okay. Anyway, I'm just, he knows. I'm totally teasing. But you know what I'm saying? Nobody wants an empty marriage, and yet it happens all the time. Nobody wants to just like take care of their kids without the reward of being close to them, without knowing what's really going on to them. But it takes vulnerability. Intimacy takes vulnerability. Intimacy. Another reason I think we don't go in this inter, inner room with God is because intimacy is also, it will breed revelation. You will, and you will often get a revelation about yourself. I can honestly say, though my journey with the Lord has not looked quite like this, like I had hoped it would, <laughs> it's definitely looked a little swervy, a little curvy, okay? <laughs> I will say this, though. If I look at it overall, it's definitely on this tra trajectory. I've noticed when I've had really low seasons that drop real low like this, then when I really, like, when God really, it's like it goes way up, you know? And I never drop quite as low as I did before. So that's a good thing. But in all honesty, in all honesty, it takes work. And when God starts revealing himself to you, he will reveal things about you as well. And it doesn't always feel good. You know, there's a reason the Israelites didn't want to go up the mountain with Moses. <laughs> when when uh, Moses came back and his face was all aglow, they were even fearful of his shining face, if you remember that story. Have you ever been there where you're so far gone, you feel so distant from God, you don't even want to be sitting and having coffee with like a really godly person. I don't even want to do that. You're afraid they're going to catch on to you or something. Because intimacy does. It has revelation. And God, he starts getting pickier with you because he is making you more into the image of his son all of the time. It says, scripture says he's taking us from glory to glory. 
meaning God's essence and his nature should be getting squeezed out of me a whole lot more than my sin nature over time because God promises to do that work. But when we go in that inner room, we can experience some vulnerability. We can experience some, like, for example, I can't get away with, like, the little sins anymore without, like, all right, I got to go make that right with that person. Do you know what I'm saying? He's getting more picky. But I'm glad. I am glad. But there's different reasons. And I want to say that I think another reason that we may just go ahead and stay in the outer room is we're pretty good at it, first of all. Once you've kind of figured out that thing you're good at, I mean, let's just face it. We kind of just keep getting better at this one thing. And, and, and rarely do we venture out. But actually, when you follow Jesus, it's not like that at all. It's a total adventure. Nothing about the disciples' life when they were following Jesus was like religious tasks, was it? It was always this wild ride, this crazy adventure, never knowing. For, they never got to feel like they just totally knew what they were doing. And actually, I think many of us, when we accept Jesus, when we decide we want to follow him, we say we want to follow him. But I think sometimes, at least for me, in my heart, what I'm really saying is, Jesus, I love you. Thank you for saving me. Come follow me. I got some great things I'm going to do. And it's really, you should see, it's all for you, you know. But a lot of times he wants to take me in places I'm not super comfortable with. And I think one reason we don't experience the inner room is because this is the area I like to meet with God. This is where I feel comfortable. My church, my people, Sunday morning, 7 a.m. at my dinner table, nature walks. These are the ways that I like to meet with him. and That's it, okay? No, I, no other way. And I think sometimes he wants to show us something totally different so that then our ideas of him will expand way broader. All right, so, so I'm going to take you to a place that you are probably familiar with. It's the story of when Jesus was walking on the water and he calmed the storm. And a lot of times we hear about this story um, in terms of Peter when he got out of the boat and sank. But I'm not going to talk about that mainly because um, it's not the point that I want to make. Uh, the other thing is I am assume that you're probably familiar with that part. But actually that story is told in three different Gospels and the Peter part's only in one of them. The reason that I want to tell the story about Jesus walking on that water is because I think it has a lot to do with this outer room versus inner room experience. And it's also a very intriguing story for me. And I've read it many, many times. I've studied it. I've listened to sermons on it because, I don't know if you'll find this as fascinating as I do, that story is the very first mention of the disciples worshiping. You uh, take yourself on a little journey. You'll see that they have witnessed already, they have witnessed miracles of healing, of casting out demons. This story actually just came off the coattails of the feeding of the 5,000. They have seen the water turn into wine. They've seen lots of miracles. And it'll say like, and they were amazed. It'll say, you know, and they followed him. And they called him teacher. And they learned from him. But it does not say they worshipped him until he got in that boat. And that right there will intrigue me for my whole life. So I want to share some things with you about this story that I think really parallel into, into ways of um, thinking about how we might enter this inner room, inner room experience with God.
All right. That story is found in Matthew, if you want to turn to it. It's actually found in a few different places. I'm just going to read it from Matthew 14, or you can follow above. Okay, it's, uh, it's called Jesus Walks on Water. I'm going to skip past the part about Peter, though, all right? I'm just, I just want you to put yourself in the disciples on the whole. I want you to put yourself in their place, okay? It says, immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him on the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Okay, Immediately, meaning immediately after that miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. So they've witnessed this, this incredible, incredible miracle that they never thought could happen. And it actually says they were amazed. You ever seen God do something for someone else and you're like, well, I'll be. That is amazing, you know? On the inside, you're kind of like, I kind of wish he'd do something for me right now too. But yay, that's amazing. You know what I mean? So I think this is one thing. I think that miracle was amazing. I think it's about to get more personal for them, though. And so after that miracle, and you know how it is, that scripture that I just read about the tabernacle, it said that the Holy Spirit was trying to show them a new and better way, but it said that he could not do it if that first tabernacle was still standing. If that first tabernacle was still standing. So I don't know what the old way is for you. I don't know that, uh, what, what that like, little box that you put God in is. But he's not going to be showing you the more until you have retired that, until you're ready for the more. I'm not incredibly comfortable preaching while grieving. I, I, I'm truly not. But God knew this was going to happen. And I got to think he's got something in that, specifically in that. So I say yes. You know, I don't know what that thing is for you, but I know he wants us to step out of our comfort zone. And I know he wants to show us more parts of who he is so we can more fully see the picture. You know, at my grandpa's funeral, so many people were getting up and talking. And I thought I knew him really, really well. I thought I knew him pretty well. And then people were getting up there saying things about him. And I'm like, my grandpa did that? Really? What? Huh? You know? And I'm thinking, this is what God wants from us. He wants us to get to heaven. And when we get to heaven, we're not all that surprised by his full, vast character, you know? I don't want to be the person that only knows him really good as a loving father and a provider. I want to see him as a healer in my life. I do. I want to know him as ecstatic joy in times of pain. I do. And so I think he wants to show us these things, and this is what happened. Jesus told them to go immediately into the boat. And so right here, they've experienced a miracle. Likely they wanted to stay there. I'm guessing if I'm in a place where there's been a wonderful miracle, I just want to bask in that for a while, don't you? But instead, he tells them to get out in the boat and go do what they do every day, get in a boat. You ever notice that? Sometimes you can have these wonderful moments with God or in your church community and your, and your eyes can be really open to things and you just want to stay at it. But then it's like, and then you go home and it's like, well, back to the office <laughs> or back to the dishes, back to the daily grind. And he sends them there. He sends them there. He sends them out into the water and it says, after he had dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. By the way, so many times it says Jesus withdrew to lonely places. Are we? Are we regularly withdrawing to lonely places to just have that intimate time with our Lord? That's an inner room experience as well. So we see Jesus going off by himself after this miracle. And then it says, when evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, about three miles 
buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. So um, when you're reading Bible stories, there, are, there is a ton of symbolism to it. A ton of symbolism. And when you read stories about waves and water and boats and these things, here's just like a little snapshot of the symbolism that is often being referred. When we hear about waves, these are turbulent times in our life. They're turbulent times in our life. The boat refers to your life. Your life. When evening came, what do you think that means? Three miles from anywhere. This means I can't see where I once was and I can't see where I'm going. There was a miracle over here and I don't even see that place anymore. And it's dark. These are dark times. They can't see where they were. They can't see where they're going and they're buffeted by winds. Buffeted is a nice word. When you look that word up, it actually more accurately translates tormented tormented by the waves or the turbulent times. You ever been tormented by turbulent times in your life? That's where these guys were. And it says, during the fourth watch of the night, which is actually the darkest part of the night, Jesus went out to them and walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. They later pulled him in the boat, and immediately they worshiped him. It's the first picture of worshiping him. The word for worship actually more accurately means to bow and kiss the feet of. Most likely, they very literally bowed down to him and kissed his feet. And it says... And when, they climbed in, when he climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you're the Son of God. You have to picture this. Jesus was up on the mountain, completely undisturbed by this storm down here. He descends down the mountain. He comes on to this troubled world, to this turbulent, tormenting, dark world. And actually, more accurately, it says that the disciples received him into their boat, their life. He's walking to them, and I think it's interesting that they didn't recognize him since they were, like, just with him. I mean, I know I get it. He was on water, but, like, still, like, I, even if Neil was walking on water, whoa, weird, but I still, like, know what you look like. So I just have always thought it's weird that um, multiple times the disciples, like, don't recognize him. I'm like, what? Um, but actually, um, it's interesting because there's a lot of times that Jesus has showed up in my life terrifying ways actually I didn't I didn't I didn't I didn't recognize him I don't know what Jesus did physically to himself but I do know that he appeared regularly to the people that he loved the most and they didn't recognize him I don't think he was trying to tease them I don't think he was trying to confuse them I think he wanted them to get so familiar with his character, that they didn't identify him with a form. 
And that's what this guy in Hebrews is doing. He's saying, if that first tabernacle is still standing, you'll never go into the inner room. Maybe you experienced inner room stuff uh, in your 20s this particular way, and so you're still trying to experience them this particular way with those long worship nights, and somehow it's just not cutting it anymore. Maybe God wants you to do something new with him. Maybe he wants to take you to some new places. Maybe he wants you to get, because you know what I mean? Like, we've lived in two houses we didn't deserve and we couldn't afford. That's another story, and I'd love to tell you another time. But God miraculously provided our houses for us. So this might sound weird to you, but when people are in a situation where they just don't know what to do about their housing, they need a house, they can't afford it, they're afraid they're going to lose it, I feel like I'm your girl. I will pray for that for you because I know God can get you a house. I know he can. God provides. I am so firm in God provides because so many times we've had absolutely nothing and he's provided. So I'm like firm in that. But then some of you guys are telling me about healing and I'm like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not, you know, and you know, you've experienced this in a different way than I have. We need each other, and we need to tell people all the ways that God has shown up in your life so that I can believe it for myself, because what he can do for me, he can do for you. And I think he wanted them to know, yeah, I can feed a lot of people. I can, but it doesn't end there. I can calm storms, too. I would love to see like Jesus calms this. I would love to see like if they became like storm chasers. You know what I mean? Whereas they were so fearful of this storm, and they should have been. But when you really think about this, they were bound to be in another storm at some point in their life. I mean, if you're going to be fishermen, you're going to be in a storm. How do you suppose they reacted in the next storm? I'd say now they're pretty sure they know they're going to be okay. What if we really, really, really knew we were going to be okay? What would we do differently? What would I do differently for God? What would I be willing to give up? What would I be willing to try? What would I be willing to do? How would I be willing to act differently? What would I do differently if I just really, 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 really believed we were going to be okay? And I think God purposely shows up in your life in ways that you're not expecting. You don't even understand. It's even a little bit mysterious and maybe even scary because he wants to meet you in that place too. And then once he does, that can never be taken away from you. Do you understand what I'm saying? It can never be taken away from you. And I don't know about you, but I want, by the time I get to him, I want to be like, yeah, I knew all those parts about you, God. You're, you're, just, you're just exactly who I thought you were but better. That's what I want to experience. But you know what? If I'm only going to do my Christian life the way I always have, he won't ever look any different to me. I've thought I was bored with God before in my life. I have. And I realize I'm bored with religion at times. I am. And in times when, when you have a lot of pain and in times when things are really, really hard, religion does not cut it. It's not enough. It's not good enough. In fact, you can't even hardly get yourself to do it anymore. Intimacy with Jesus is enough. In this world, you'll have troubles, turbulent times, waves, storms, dark times, dark nights of the soul. But take heart, take courage. Sound familiar? It is I. When he said, don't be afraid, it is I. You know what that word is? It's Yahweh. 
take courage. It is I am that I am. He said the same exact thing to Moses. These guys knew it. They took him in the boat and said, you're the son of God. When Jesus appeared and said, I am, they knew what he was saying. And they knew, you're not just an awesome guy that can expand bread. You're God. They got it. And then the coolest thing is, it says they took him in the boat, and then they quickly got to where they were supposed to go. We take him in our boat. We're going to have storms. But if we really, really believe that he can meet us there and show us all these different things about him in that storm, we're not going to be afraid of him the same way. In fact, there's a little bit of an intrigue. What deep places are you going to take me to in this one? I'll end with, with this because I, I, uh, I grew up going um, hiking a lot with my dad. My dad's like a total nature lover and everything, and he's a guy that'll like grab a snake and tell you all about it and point out this rock, and that came from the Mayan times and all that. He just, he loves to take us on these hikes. But my dad would never, never, he would take us to these state parks, and you know there's a nice little path so you don't have to get all entangled in the woods and the briar and the cockleburrs and all those things. Not my dad. We don't take a path, you know. <laughs> and so I'm like a little girl, you know, and he doesn't ever bring snacks, and I'm not dressed appropriately, but it's like hours and hours walking in the woods. And, and he's always taking us through brush and briar because that's where you find all the good critters. You lift up this, and you find the lizard and, the, and all these things. And the thing is, after a while, I so trusted that my dad knew what he was doing, and I so looked forward to all these unique finds that we were going to get that regular people who go on the path, you know, they're never going to see that. You know what I mean? That I became so confident and where I, I never wanted to go to the same place twice. Never. I can honestly tell you to this day, I still don't enjoy a path. It just seems a little bit, mm, a little boring. I feel that way about a Christian. The older I get, the more I'm like, life's going fast. I, I, I don't want to live a boring Christian life. I want to follow my father through all these adventures. And, and I, I, want, I want the thrill of it. And I don't need to know where I'm going. I just need to know that I'm following the one that knows where he's going. And so we keep our eyes on the author of our faith. We're not the authors. He is, and we keep our eyes on him. And I just, I just pray for all of us that we will enter our next storm. This has been my prayer for you. You'll enter your next storm, and you're going to come out of it going, whoa, truly, he's the Son of God. You know, amen.